Welcome to the Front Lines of Freedom, brought to you by Renew Democracy Initiative. My name is Ivan Mawadire, a pastor and a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where I was jailed and tortured for starting a citizen's movement and for mobilizing millions of people to stand up to the dictatorship there. Today, we mark the completion of season one of the Frontlines of Freedom podcast. So let me start by saying thank you. Thank you for tuning in every week and growing our community of listeners. Over the last nine episodes, we have journeyed across the globe, hearing the voices of some of the most inspirational people in our world. We've gone from Nigeria to Cambodia, Venezuela to China, South Sudan to East Turkestan, Iran, Rwanda and Hong Kong. We heard incredible accounts and experiences of struggles for freedom and democracy. We had the unique opportunity to be told things about these people's lives that they do not normally speak about. Some of them took us in to meet their families and revealed the personal cost of their work. Others showed us their physical and emotional wounds, and some opened up about their fears and regrets. But also, through their narratives, we relived their most fond moments of big and small victories whilst enjoying the warmth of their undying hopes. In today's episode, we go back into the rich tapestry of experiences that our friends encountered, and we go back into the things we took away as reflections and lessons to add to our own lives. What you will hear today are snippets from those hallowed conversations. If you haven't listened to any of these episodes, I encourage you to take some time to uh, experience the full episodes of whichever ones tug at your heart as you listen. I promise you won't regret it. As a non-violent protest against police corruption and brutality was underway in Lagos, Nigeria, a young female DJ stepped off a plane having arrived back from a gig she had. She hears of the protest being led by thousands of young people and decides to immediately go and join. DJ Switch, as she is known, winds up on stage, leading and directing the chanting of the masses. Then things took an unexpected turn. While we were on stage, um, I remember a young boy coming up to me by the side. At this point, someone was someone was telling their story of uh, police brutality. And a young boy came to me and he said, he wants to show me something. Now, the, the toll gate is managed by uh, a company, right? The um, LCC. And so... He said he, he just saw an LCC staff dismantling the CCTV cameras. I said, really? And he said, and the boy, good on the boy too. He took a picture. And so we went and looked at it. So I didn't even think anything cynical. I just said, maybe they don't want us to destroy their property. Of course, we were not being destructive. We gathered there every day. We protest and then we clean up after ourselves. It's incredible when, when I tell you the, the character of these young people we're talking about. And so I, I just thought, hey, maybe they think we might destroy their, their equipment. Never mind, it's okay. But not long after, the street lights were turned off. Trust me when I tell you that, that the lights at the toll gate, they, they don't go off, okay? Even when we suffer serious epileptic power supply in the country, the light at the toll gate does not go off. And so the lights went off and we're like, okay, maybe they just really want us out of here. Before I could even really understand what was happening or rather why the lights had gone off, 
gunshots just rang all over the place. And I, I need you to understand something. I can't explain to you. I can't explain to you how I felt. I, I just can't. I only felt, I only knew you, you could hear the gunshots is coming from behind, behind me. We start screaming on the microphone. There was another lady that was there. I met her that day. And we were just screaming, brace, everyone get down, get down, brace, you know, and you don't even know what you're about to see. You just think, you know, who's, who's attacking, who's attacking us, who's shooting at us. And so while we're bracing on the floor and I first see the boots walk up and I raise my head a little bit just to see it was the Nigerian army. Now we're waving our flags. We're singing the national anthem because we want them to know we're not here to cause problems. We are your citizens. We're young people. The national anthem is supposed to be some sort of um, signal for other Nigerians. I've always believed that. And I'm sure many young people that they believed the same thing. We were surrounded by them, you know? And then I said to myself, um, okay, I know my country. I know they are going to hide this. I know nobody's going to know what happened here. I don't know why I resigned in my mind. I don't know. I still say it till today, I, till tomorrow. I don't even know. I just pulled out my phone and decided to live stream the madness that I was witnessing. And even while I was on there, I, I genuinely thought that's the, that's the end of my life. It's going to, I'm going to, this is it. I, I believed that. And I kept on saying to people, please record my life, record my life. And, and somewhere in my, in my mind, I just believed I wasn't going to make it. I always talk about one boy who I don't know. I don't know his name. I had never met him. I don't, I can't remember his face. It breaks my heart, but I think that boy saved me because he was lying on top of me and screaming, cover her. I have no idea why he was doing that. That boy was shot on his back, his lower back. I am grateful to that boy. Have you ever spoken to someone who just leaves you energized because of their vibrant personality and character? For me, that person is Masi Alinejad from Iran. I have never, ever met an individual so vibrant, so hopeful, and so committed. She leads the most powerful of campaigns against the Iranian regime who are violent oppressors of women. Up until I spoke to Masi, I didn't know that women in Iran are not allowed to ride bikes, uh, swim, or even sing in public. They are treated as property. But Masi started a movement against all of that. You want to listen to what she has to say. And I said that every Wednesday, just, you know, just carry a white symbol to identify each other in public. That's all. Such a peaceful movement, no? The Iranian government actually arrested 29 women of White Wednesday's campaign only in one day. They announced that. It's not me saying that. They announced that. So why they crime was just wearing a white headscarf or waving a white headscarf in public, taking it off and walking while they're waving this like a flag of peace. And that actually became a punishable crime. I mean, I'm being very honest with you because now I know that your heart is in Zimbabwe, but you live miles away from, from your own country. Sometimes you feel guilty, you know? Sometimes you say, oh my God, I'm safe here. And they're putting my people in danger. That, that was the moment, Ivan. I felt, I felt 
miserable. The day when 29 women got arrested, I was walking in my garden and crying and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to stop this movement. Guess what happened? The day when Yasaman Aryani got arrested, when Savak Kordafshari got arrested, I was like, oh my God, it's a shame for me. It's a shame for me. You know this feeling. First of all, when you said that you have the same feeling and you said you feel guilty because of what you hey, this is what the government wants us to feel. They want us to feel guilty, but those who kill people should feel guilty. Those who execute people should feel guilty. Those who rape people should feel guilty. You didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, the day when I felt guilty, when I was like, oh my God, I want to, you know, yeah, I told you, I was like, I have to kill myself when my people are getting arrested and getting killed and I'm safe here. What happened? Mother of Yasaman Aryani sent me a video. Mother of Sabah Kordafshari made a video. Mothers of those people who got killed made a videos and saying that, hi, Massey, we want you to be our voice. And I was like, this is the moment. I have to make a decision, feel miserable, cry, or actually believe that these people have agency. These people are the true leaders of change within the society. They just need someone to echo their voice. And the government want to actually break you down because they know that you're going to go every corner of the free world and telling all the politicians, shame on you if you don't listen to these people in Zimbabwe, in Iran. So that's why they try to make you feel guilty. When you've watched a brilliant movie, you marvel at the plot twist, right? Well, this real life story was made into a movie that ended the way you'd expect the feel-good movies to end. But the real life story produced one more horrible twist. Languishing in a prison in Rwanda is Paul Sesabagina, the man portrayed in the hit movie Hotel Rwanda. He saved thousands by hiding them in the hotel he worked during the Rwandan genocide that killed millions. His daughter Karin Kanimba joined us and narrated his kidnapping from San Antonio, Texas in 2020. And she also told us of the fierce fight his family has mounted for his release. They kidnapped him from San Antonio, Texas, um, via Dubai, and brought him to Rwanda. They used a priest um, to lure him from Texas. So they know that my father is a man of faith. They know that he's a very religious man. And so they sent um, an agent of the Rwandan government who called himself a priest to gain his trust for over two years and who eventually invited him to go speak to churches in Burundi. However, this was not a real priest. This was an agent of the government. Instead of going to Burundi, the plane took him to Rwanda. In the plane, he was drugged. And then upon arriving in Rwanda, he was tied up by the hands, the legs. His mouth was covered. His nose was covered. His eyes were covered. And he was taken, drugged and taken to a torture house where he remained there for four days, tortured for four days. At the end of those four days, because of the torture, he um, signed false confessions and, um, and then eventually was, uh, was charged of um, completely made up um, accusations um, of terrorism my mother is holding our family together like the pillar that she is. And we continue to remind ourselves every single day, not only that we are grateful that we know he's alive, um, but also of our responsibility to not only speak out like he did his entire life for the people who were being abused and silenced by this regime. My father has been silenced 
for 650 days now, he has been silenced by the Rwandan government. And so we are being his voice and we are telling the world what is happening to him and calling on the international community, not again to close a blind eye to this government and what they're doing to him, but also to other political prisoners and other people who they are silencing in the Great Lakes region of Africa. Uh, for for the past 650 days, we have been knocking on every possible doors, calling every government official that we can get in touch with, every news agency to speak to 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 speak about his case and cover it. There are some people who will always find a way to keep their spirits up, even in the middle of the most unbelievably challenging of situations. Leopoldo Lopez is one such person. After he had been jailed by the Maduro dictatorship in Venezuela for leading citizen protest against misgovernance, Leopoldo spent almost eight years in jail. Four of those years was in a solitary military prison. He had been the mayor of one of the main municipalities of Caracas, but his activism made him an enemy of the state. So they, they, they went on fire, you know, and they just um, reacted very harshly on me, and they took me into a, a um, punishment cell for 45 days. Um, they gave me putrefied food. Um, and at the time, I, I remember I did an, another type of protest that might sound uh, crazy, but what I did was, I, as I told you before, I've always been involved in combat sports, so what I did is I started, I had a very, very thin mattress, almost like a, like, like a sheet, like a, uh, like a cover, not a mattress. So I put that uh, in, against the wall and I started punching it. Um, so I broke my knuckles uh, and, and they started to bleed uh, a lot. Anybody who's, who knows um, you know, or has experience in combat sports, you know that, that you know, like not breaking the bone, but breaking the surface of your knuckles. Um, it hurts, but, but it doesn't hurt that much, and it bleeds a lot. So that became a paintbrush. So with my fist, I, I painted something that I knew it was going to be very shocking for the guards. So I had this image of um, Silence of the Lambs when Hannibal Lecter was uh, in a cage, and he, 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 he took a guard, and then he uh, actually hang him uh, around the cell and had this very, very creepy, very uh, dark image of a, like a blood angel. So I painted this against the mattress. Um, it was very, very large. I mean, it was the size of a mattress. And then I continued to bleed uh, and I painted against the wall, no more torture. So when the guards came, they were completely in shock. So uh, that, that was, again, very, very shocking. And when the, when the guards came in, they said, um, you, know, what are, you know, are you crazy? And I said, yeah, my friend, <laughs> you know, I am. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, if you don't, if, if you don't give me fine, if you don't give me food in, in, in good state, you know, I will continue and say, well, we'll take the mattress out. And I'll say, do it. And then you know what I'm going to do? Uh, I'm going to hit the wall. And you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to hit my face. And my face is going to become... You know, you're going to have to tell the world what happened to me. The story Musakua told about Cambodia was shocking to hear. When the new rulers of Cambodia took over in 1975, they decreed the start of year zero, a complete reset of the nation of Cambodia. It meant erasing 
everything and starting from nothing. Everyone who was deemed educated was killed in a brutal genocide. Musokuwa survived because her parents sent her out of the country. That was the last time she saw them. It has not been easy, Evan. It has been, to me, you know, I was trying to figure out who I, who am I? Am I French? Am I Chinese? Am I Cambodian? What am I? And then bringing the, raising three children at the same time. And at that time, it was the, the country had just been opened by, because there was a international embargo against Cambodia because of the one party state, because of the way Cambodia was, was run by the Khmer Rouge and those who came after were, gave the Cambodian people no freedom. So learning about myself, I also had to protect my children, my three, my three daughters, because I was such a public figure. I was everywhere in the city, everywhere on the street. People recognized me and I was doing very, very and things that are usually not done. For example, working with sex workers, you know, listening to the stories of sex workers, going to the most, the poorest, poorest part of Cambodia. Uh, so I couldn't take my, my daughters along with me. I couldn't tell them exactly what was going on because I wanted to protect them. So they were kept in, uh, they went to an international school all along. And physically, uh, I was not home a lot. This Cambodia is a big country and to, with my position, um, I had to travel a lot. Um, I had to run, run a campaign. I had to uh, run as candidate, stand as candidate, get elected. I was all over the country. So I regret that very, very, very much. My, my, my daughters knew all along uh, where I was, what I was doing. It was just like a, a part of the family that we don't talk about, but they, they understand because they, they are now hold these values of, for justice, for gender justice. Uh, it's been painful in terms of not, uh, now I regret, I wish I had done more. I wish I had told my, my daughters what it was. But my daughters today say, Ma, you don't have to tell us. We know. On April 16, 1989, a young student leader arrived in Tiananmen Square with his friends to mourn the death of a political leader whose heart was for China to reform into a more democratic nation. Little did they know that their actions would lead to one of the most hopeful moments for change in China, but also one of the most tragic events they had not imagined. Zhou Feng Suo is gentle, yet determined and powerful in his intentions. In the basement of his New Jersey home, he has erected a museum to the June 4th incident, also known as the Tiananmen Square Massacres. So initially, uh, when the troops, the, I think they used about a quarter million troops altogether uh, trying to invade Beijing, uh, there were two waves. So immediately after the martial law was declared, that was the first wave on May uh, 19 and May 20. But they were stopped by people who would even carry their kids on their shoulder uh, to stand in the street to show the soldier, you know, what Beijing is like. This, this is a peaceful place for families. We don't want troops here. And so they couldn't push through and they had to withdraw. But then two weeks later, they came with tanks, machine guns. They were shooting all the way so that, that Beijing became a war zone and many were killed, uh, you know, 
even a lot of people, when they couldn't believe it, just seeing people dying around them. Uh, for me, you know, the next day uh, after I left Tiananmen Square, I saw 40 bodies. This was in a basic garage outside of one hospital, because the host hospital uh, called uh, Fuxin Hospital, this was on West Chang'an Street, was so overwhelmed with people who were killed and injured that they had to put the bodies of these dead people outside in the bicycle garage. Uh, that's a kind of tragic. But still, I think that's also the moment where people's courage shone. We were there fortunate uh, at the basically the eye of the hurricane, that's the Tiananmen Square. But people all over Beijing, they would show up, even knowing that people are dying. They would come up, they would shot at the troops, telling them, you know, you leave Beijing, you're fascist, you cannot conquer us. And then they will be shot at. Uh, just like that, you know, that's when you know, we see the legend, like the tank, that iconic image of last century. That's when, that's also... What I remember, you know, during all these tragedies, the courage of people to stand up for each other. In 2001, a large group of refugee teenagers is rescued from the horrendous war between Sudan and the freedom-seeking South Sudan. Many of them who were now orphaned had started life as six-year-old child soldiers who had normalized burying their age mates dead from starvation, disease, and sometimes combat. Peter Bia Ajak was keen as a young man to see a free Sudan, but besides knowing how to shoot a gun and the communist political indoctrination he had received, he knew nothing else. The rescue brought the children to the United States, where they each began journeys of self-transformation. Peter's remarkable journey of transformation is enthralling. Well, my father was one of the close uh, lieutenants of Dr. John. Not only that, Dr. John is actually my uncle. We come from the same clan. And my father, before the war, had been the chief of our clan. So when the war started, my father let go of his chiefdom, and then he joined the war. Having that relationship with John Grang, he was so close. So John Grang thought of the idea and he said, this idea we should replicate. We should have all these children be recruited directly so that they can join and we can train them. And after five, ten years, they can become soldiers that understand the ideology of the, the struggle. Mm. Or if the war is over, then they can become the professional class that then rebuild the country. Tell me, Peter, do you remember what it felt like as a six-year-old, growing eight-year-old, brandishing this weapon? Do you remember what that felt like? Or, or is it just, did it feel like you were just a normal kid? Well, of course, for me, that was the epitome of being a normal kid, because this is what all my peers and all the children around me and my age were doing. And when my dad put me into this program, I met other children like me. Now, I was on the younger side, but it was actually quite liberating. First, I was scared. Don't get me wrong, because I've been living with my mother, my father, you know, leaving them and going into a camps where I'm going to be living by myself. That scared me. But my father encouraged me because he told me this is what my generation in South Sudan, this is what the reality has forced us to, to face. Mm. And he was telling me that there is, that I should summon the courage. He encouraged me that, you know, life is given by God. 
And sometime here we are alive, not because we choose to be alive, but God protect us. Mm. So he was telling me that I'm putting you here, not because I want you away, but I want you also to participate within your own generation. This difference of focus between yourself and the president eventually leads to you being uh, in prison. So the first thing happened when I realized that my ideas were not being used and I was virtually being marginalized, I resigned. And I was shocked because I had misjudged so many things because I believed that we all had the same objectives was right. to make sure that South Sudan succeed. Mm. But the way the president managed power left me wondering what was really going on. And although I had been there throughout, I had a front row seat uh, in our journey to statehood, I felt there were a few things that I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go back now and look at them from a different perspective. So I decided to do a PhD and do a PhD in politics. Mm. So I went to University of Cambridge in the UK, started my program. While I'm in the middle of my program, the civil war broke out. Mm. Through the civil war, it became now obvious that what I was saying was the correct approach. Uh, you need professional security organization. You need a professional security sector. You need decision making within the security sector to be to be streamlined. You know, you need mandates of different security organs to be very clear. You need to create interaction of different security units so that they don't step on each other and become overly competitive. Uh, you need to also then bring in the human side of the security, the development, the healthcare, the human rights, and all of that. Whilst in the second trimester of her pregnancy, a woman is detained and kept in a Soviet-style gulag. She gives birth to a son in captivity, whose first encounter with life is imprisonment for the crime of being born a Uyghur like his father. Nuri Tokel grows up with a deep sense of seeking freedom and justice for his people, and that becomes a compass whose direction he could not ignore. So the Uyghur's ethno-national identity have been perceived two ways. One, a sign of disloyalty. The communist ideology and the, the foreign religion, specifically the Christianity and Islam, are considered as a foreign religion to the Chinese. In some instances, they call it Western religion. So that Western religion brings home Western influence. The Western influence is free speech, free press, freedom of assembly and freedom of religion. So the Chinese naturally see these are uh, potentially a source of unrest that could undermine communist leadership. They're specifically targeting the Uyghur woman through sexual violence in the camps, rape, gang rape, for example, forced sterilization. Even those who are in their mid-50s who had no plan to conceive Naturally, they may not be able to conceive, but the government is so scared, so fearful of potentially some woman carries God's gift, a, a, a kid, a baby. They worry that it may happen, so they force sterilize mid-age woman. And then the other aspect, under this is also meets the requirement of the genocide convention or gen definition of genocide, forcible uh, separation of children from their parents. Based on the New York Times report, 800,000 to 1 million Uyghur children have been forcibly removed from their families and, state, and sent to state-run orphanages. I have not seen my mother since uh, my law school graduation in 2004. She came to attend my graduation in Washington, and I never thought that that would be the last time that I see her. So even things as basic as attending your loved one's funeral and pray and pay respect being taken away from me. 
So I live in this anguish, despair, disappointment, worry that my work may cause the lives of uh, my loved ones. It is, it's excruciatingly painful. I also mentioned um, in a few places uh, when I speak, when I do public speaking, that I used to not to enjoy holidays such as Thanksgiving and Christmas because everyone goes to their parents, everyone goes to their homes, sit around table, pray, eat, catch up. I don't have that kind of luxury. I came here in 1995. I have not been back home since. And, and I will never be able to go home because I'm now sanctioned. What does it take to defy Chinese autocracy? It takes a 14-year-old who refuses to accept the subjugation of his people. Sunny Cheung was an ordinary Hong Kong high schooler when he first stepped up to defy the Chinese Communist Party. That decision led him on a journey that has become his life mission. We talked about devoting one's life to a cause and what led him to step up. I really started my activism um, 10 years ago. In 2012, I was like, I mean, 14 or 15 years old. And then I was still, I mean, just entered the high school. And then um, something happened, I mean, in Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong government, I mean, um, of course, I mean, this is not democratic. Um, our chief executive is not elected by people. So um, the Hong Kong government has long been manipulated by the uh, Beijing government for a while. However, in 2012, the government unprecedentedly wanted to introduce a new education curriculum. And by that curriculum, they call that national education. The curriculum was really problematic. Basically, it was all about the Hong Kong government and Beijing government collectively wanted to brainwash the whole generation. They want to erase the history uh, of the dark side uh, of the Communist Party in China. So they mentioned nothing regarding the uh, June 4th massacre back in 1989. They talk very little regarding um, the, the uh, very human uh, humanitarian crisis uh, back in China. They only know how to worship the Beijing government. That's why many young Hong Kong people, they were angry. So I, I mean, I, I stood up and tried to protest, and that was my starting point. I was really depressed and frustrated when I uh, knew that I have to flee my motherland. I have to um, leave the hometown that I grew up for my entire life. I, I, I was really, I mean, frustrated about that. But I mean, the situation makes me no choice. I mean, um, because after I won in the primaries, uh, like one month later, I found out actually so many national security police, um, they were uh, actually, I mean, chasing me fishing me, and they uh, they are going to arrest me. They are going to arrest me for my previous uh, activism because I did a lot of international advocacy, because I did a lot of activism and I joined the primaries and became a elected representative uh, that can really, I mean, have the people's support and popular support. And that's why they target on me. Don't take democracy for granted. Don't take uh, liberty for granted. People from authoritarian societies, people who suffer under autocratic regime, we know, we understand that freedom, liberty, democracies are something very invaluable and that we need to continually to fight for and try to sustain it. Because sometimes, I mean, dictatorship 
and authoritarians are really wicked and and toxic in a way that they will really uh, corrupt and 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 try to undermine our uh, institution, and we need to be mindful of that. So don't take it for granted, and let's join the fight together. Uh, this is not just our fight; this is also your fight. Each one of our guests in this first season showed us what they did to push back against the injustice of authoritarianism and what consequences they suffered. Their stories reveal the painful state of our world today, but more importantly, they represent the undying hope of humanity to live freely, to dream wildly, and to always bet on ourselves and the inevitable residence of a hope so powerful within us. Listening to them laugh, cry, and sigh makes one suddenly realize that they are as human as we are. Therefore, we too, if we fear not, can make a difference where we are. The next season of our podcast will again take us into the stories and experiences of people who boldly push back the most brutal regimes on our planet today. Be sure to share this podcast, and、uh, thank you for listening. Bye bye.